to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Friday the 13th. A group of camp counselors are stalked and murdered by an unknown assailant while trying to reopen a summer camp, which was the site of a child's drowning in a grisly double murder years before. It's the mother of all slasher movies. Yeah, I, I've never, I had never seen this one. I haven't ever seen it either. Like, of course, there are tight like scenes that have shown up in other movies. I knew I knew who the killer was because of Scream, <laughs> a, series, <laughs> a series that we've watched on this show and also just being in the world. But this was just one that I hadn't seen. And I have to tell our audience that I, I am on a really big horror kit. I am consuming a lot of horror media, not only for this podcast, but also I'm really wanting to see a lot of the newer horror films that are coming out. I'm watching a lot of horror-themed television. Horror is such a perfect template to draw out all sorts of stories. Well, I, I think what's happened, and I'm realizing that I've actu- I actually went through a lot more phases where I was curious about horror films mm-hmm. in my youth than I remember. And now, having done this podcast, we've analyzed so much film that now it's just, it's a natural progression to be like, well, this is a genre that we haven't really explored, and I have not spent as much time in, and so, of course, I'm going to watch the movies, and then also now I'm going to watch the television around it, and they're also producing a lot more really good horror-themed television, so I'm like, all right, I'm here for this. So... Get ready, because there's going to be a lot more horror coming out of this podcast, because <laughs> this is where Diana's brain is. Yeah, it, it's something that people have, have I've heard talk about and bring up, where it's like horror as a genre, it's such a simple formula that you can, that is, but that is also very stable to build a lot of different stuff on top of. Mm-hmm. So it's it's one of those things where it's like, you can reduce it to absolute simplicity, but you can also layer on top of it really well. And you're not breaking the genre. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes it so cool. And it's also, I mean, we talk about, you know, classic directors. A lot of them got their start in B-horror film. Sure. Roger Corman gave, you know, all the Spielberg, Lucases, and Coppolas of the world their first shot at movies. Yeah. Because it was cheap and easy to do. And that's the other thing. It's ch- It's generally pretty cheap to make a horror movie. Yes. And when we talk about cheap... This movie is definitely an example of that. Oh, absolutely. The the longer I sit with this movie, the more mixed I feel about it. Okay. I feel like this movie sits somewhere between like mystery science theater level bad, where it's just so ridiculous you can't get into it ever, versus Halloween, where we saw a movie that was incredibly constrained by budget. So a lot of the stuff that we saw, we were like, there's real genius filmmaking here. A lot of the problems are due to the fact that they had nothing to work with. Yeah. This movie is somewhere in the middle of that because it is schlocky as shit. The dialogue in this movie is non-existent. So I mostly enjoyed this film. Okay. I Like, I'm, I'm very positive. I, the script is really bad. It's not good. The dialogue is horrible. <laughs> like, let's not pretend it's genius no. at all. But the concept and the idea for the film, great. The whole story on its own is taut, perfect. I think 
you know, the only thing is that they add a few things outside of the camp that are just completely unnecessary to the story. Yeah, everything that isn't doesn't happen at the camp really doesn't service the story very well, with the exception of the girl trying to get to camp. Yeah, just Annie trying to get into the camp and hearing them talk about all this horrible stuff happen. That is very needed exposition that we need early on in the movie. And yeah. we're done. Yeah, that's it. Everything else doesn't really matter. So, yeah, I'm a, like I'm of two minds. At once, I'm both laughing at how ridiculous this movie feels and then also watching it going, I get why this birthed so many imitations. Oh, sure. And why it was a perfect ground foundation for what is like, a dozen movies now? Oh, easily. Like, this is the longest running horror franchise. Oh, okay. None of the other ones have the lasting power in terms of being able to make more and more movies. Yeah, but... Now, granted, it goes off the rails quick. We, we've we got a couple friends who are much bigger horror fanatics than we are. We have one friend who has particularly said that if we do a Friday the 13th series, they demand to come speak with us. Uh, that has been noted. Mm-hmm. Like we said in our last episode, we didn't really know what movies we were going to do for this series. We're just like, what sounds good? Let's do this one. Okay. <laughs> and this is one neither of us have seen. And it's such a linchpin. Sure. We're like, let's see it and see. Do we like it? Do we want to see where this series goes? And the answer is yes. We're not going to do the series now, but we wanted to watch it to see. Does this bear further investigation? And the answer is yes. There's something there. Yeah. So the budget for this movie was $550,000. That is no dollars. In today's money, that is about a million seven fifty. No dollars. Talk about low fucking budget. And that is the one other very noticeable thing about this movie. Which is not, it's nothing against it at all. No, where it really shows up, because it's not even really in the acting. It shows up in the edit of the movie. Shots linger way too long. No, I I can tell you exactly where it shows up. Anything that's supposed to be from the point of view of the killer is where it shows up because that is not a study cam. (laughs) Study cams are fucking expensive. Oh, yeah. And this is also 1980. Exactly. And we know when the study cam was created and that was for Rocky. Thank you. It wasn't for Rocky, but it was first really used for Rocky. Okay. Um, <laughs> go listen to that whole series. That was like the big first use of it in major movies. That is when it feels really cheap. That to me is the dead giveaway. Is like you had no money. Yeah, there, there's some of that. For me, it came through in the in the final edit where it's just like, and some of this is having watched a lot of mystery science theater recently, just as background TV of like Manos Hands of Fate level. <laughs> This scene stuck around for five seconds when it should have been cut already to go to the next one. Like, please move this along. I don't need to keep going. Or, my God, the final fight is badass until we false kill Mrs. Voorhees for the second time. Yeah. And the third time. (laughs) Well, okay. But, however, that becomes a, a horror film trope. They always come back. And I absolutely agree with that. But doing it three times before three you ti- finally kill. Twice twice is fine. Three times is too many. <laughs> it, it was like 20 minutes of the movie. And I'm like, come on. Yeah, that final fight just went on. <laughs> it, it, it went on too long. I, I do agree. It's one of those things where it just keeps going long enough that you start giggling at, at it instead of sure. being 
ratcheted up in tension by it. Fair. You drowned. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Now, in its opening weekend, the movie took in $5.8 million. It earned 10 times its budget on the opening weekend. That's amazing. Its total gross, when it was all said and done, is $39,755,000. So in contemporary horror films, it did what Saw did. This is a movie that was made for the equivalent today of nearly $2 million and raked in the equivalent today of $125 million. Yep. It's a bonker success. Yeah, which is great. And I will tell you now, nobody involved in the making of this film expected it to do that well. I believe that. This was purely a cash grab. Oh, most horror films are. Horror films and holiday films, which a lot of times horror films are considered holiday films, are literally just, we need something to go in this slot. It's not our family movie. It's not our Oscar contender. We need something to come out during this six-week period. This is the movie. It cost us nothing. That's what they are. Yeah, and more recently, we've gotten to see some of them. Like, I feel like Saw was a little more of a passion project that happened to get backing. I mean, I mean, we, we've talked all about Saw. That's just the contemporary version of this budget constraints that they had. And like, okay, this is how much money we have. This is what we're going to do. And, you know, James Wan said, okay, I'm not going to take a paycheck. I'm going to take a... I'm going to take a percentage and that paid off really well for him. <laughs> and he just made Aquaman. You know, for, for some of them, it works out really well. The interesting thing about this movie is that I don't know that it worked out that great for that many people involved in the movie. Well, it there's was, there's it, a handful of people who did OK, but it was a different time and that's OK. But I mean, I'm I'm literally just comparing it to Saw in terms of its success. Yeah. Well, there's a movie that it's going to get compared to a lot throughout this, and that's Halloween. Oh, fair. Same same time period. Well. And sim- there's some similar things happening there. So before we get into all of that, some of the things about just the overall production of this, it was competing against The Shining and The Fog that year. Oh, damn. Like, this is the same year as that. Damn. And even with that, it wound up as the 18th highest grossing film that year, period. It was a runaway success. Yeah. After initial screenings before a studio was ever attached, Mm -hmm. just showing it to get buzz about it, the response was so massive that there was a bidding war between United Artists, Warner Brothers, and Paramount as to who was going to get the distribution of the film. Okay. Like, it is schlocky, but everybody saw dollar signs when they saw this movie. Because the thing is, they were like, it hits every note so well that we can... To make this a youth audience success. Yeah. And that's that's how they got so much money out of it. I, yeah, I believe it. Now, the critical response to this movie was angry, angry. and excessive. Angry and excessive. Okay. This is where we learn about why you should probably hate Gene Siskel. Oh, okay. So Gene Siskel hated this movie so much that he spoiled the ending of the film in his review in his written column and on television. What? Yeah. He and Ebert did an entire special edition of their show later on called The War on Women, focusing on what they believed were misogynistic slasher movies. Okay. I mean, that's not, I'm not mad about that. So 
It's interesting because some of the people who made the movie, they have a very different perspective on that trope, especially as it comes to this movie. Okay. I think Siskel and Ebert did a lot to assign that trope to this movie. And then certain directors decided to just capitalize on that as they have. But I will say the people who made this movie don't agree with that assertion at all, that this is misogynistic. Okay. And we'll hear their argument later. But Siskel and Ebert felt like it very much was, and they felt like it was their civic duty to inform people about it. Siskel actually gave what he believed was actress Betsy Palmer's home address to the audience. He doxed her? And told them to write letters of protest for making the film. Dang. He he wound up giving the wrong address. That is so fucked up. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay, fuck you, Gene Siskel. Like, Siskel and Ebert? Holy shit. God damn. Whoa. (laughs) That's fucked up. I knew Siskel and Ebert were kind of pretentious assholes because they were. Let's not excuse them of that. No, but But this is beyond the fucking pale. That's so inappropriate on, like, just a bizarre level. (laughs) Jeez. Hate on the movie as much as you want. And honestly, if you really feel like it's that important that you speak out about it, fine. Give people the address of Paramount. That's who distributed Why the fucking Why are you shitting movie. on the actress? Because she has all this... Ugh, fuck you. Mm-hmm. God, ugh, I'm so mad. Now, some of his choice quotes from the review, he nicknamed the movie a, quote, cleaver in the forehead movie. Mm-hmm. Which is actually a pretty good descriptor for slasher flicks. That's not unfair. It's not unfair. And that moment is very i was i was a little shocked by that one it is shocking the violence in this film i mean i'm not shocked by the violence but i was shocked by that moment because it was the 70s when was this movie come out 1980 1980 and it was just like oh that's very graphic and i was not expecting that in this film oh absolutely when i say the violence is shocking it's not that you know we haven't seen violence that's worse on screen now Sure. And it's not even the time period. It's just that the violence that happens is very sudden in this film. True. In a way that really makes an impact. That's fair. Like, it shows up and you are not even remotely ready for it. Yeah. And that particular one, for sure. So I'm not I'm not mad about Cleaver to the Forehead movie. That's fair. And he also stated that the director was, quote, one of the most despicable creatures that has ever infested the film industry, unquote. It's <laughs> very personal. I do not know what they had that much against slasher flicks, except that they grew up on Hitchcock and they believed that if you were going to make a horror thriller, it had, it had to be that level of craft. It's like, okay, but like also calm down. Calm down and maybe don't give people an actress's home address. Like she didn't direct the movie like... Fucking I'd be hell. less mad if it had been the director's address. Come <laughs> on. Ugh, it's still a dick move, but ugh. Of course, all this negative criticism just boosted ticket sales. Sure. So laugh all the way to the bank. If you really want a movie to do that badly, just say we refuse to review it. Mm. That's how strongly we feel about it. See that like, again, that's still giving it too much. But at least you've stood on your principles then. Yeah. If you're like, I just won't watch these movies. Okay. That's that's your that's your line, and that's fine. But then stand your ground on that instead of like turning it around and making it a violent act on your own. Maybe. However, there is one critic that has taken a longer view 
Devin Faraci has long been an apologist for this movie, and his idea is that this series as a whole mm-hmm. is better than any other horror series because the first film in the series is not this tentpole. It's a good, solid movie. Sure. But in his mind, he's like, the whole thing has longevity because every series has highs and lows. But if you look at Halloween, if you look at Nightmare on Elm Street, and if you look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original film is such a strong entry that the movies that come after it are going to necessarily pale in comparison. Okay. And in this one, it doesn't do that. It sets a table and keeps upping the ante. Interesting. And he also calls this a sort of American tape on the Giallo concept. So the Dario Argento Suspiria type movies. That gives these guys way too much credit. (laughs) But I do think that's an interesting idea and something later on, you know, we should watch Suspiria at some point and some of that stuff because it's also very influential to today's horror directors. Yeah, I know that. It's an interesting idea that it was like this movie was strong because not because the movie itself was that strong, but because it just did so much to create a world that they could play in. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I'm thinking on it. And the MPAA told the producers that in order to get an R rating on the sequel to this film, they were going to have to significantly cut back on the gore because the MPAA was incredibly regretful for letting them get away with as much as they did in this movie. Oh, okay. In fact, Sean Cunningham, who we'll talk about our director, believed that this movie's success and other producers then coming to the MPAA and being like, you let Friday the 13th get away with it, so why won't you let us? Yep, you set a precedent. He believes that they went so much harder on him any other time he tried to make a movie after this Yeah, because of that. I mean, it makes sense. They let them get away with this much in this movie, and they were not going to try and let anybody else do it after. I, mean, I... <laughs> I can't say it's unfair. Yeah. Again, the, the, the violence in this movie is just shocking. Not necessarily, like, bloody awful, but just, oh my god, they really did that. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Y'all went there. Okay. Our writing is Victor Miller and Ron Kurtz. Now, you've never heard of either of these guys. They didn't really write too much after this. Miller, his only big writing screenplay credit is this movie. Oh, okay. Kurz went on to write Friday the 13th Part 2 and worked on some of the subsequent films, I believe. But they both get character credit on everything going forward. Sure. You make some characters, you get credit for shit. But Miller is the main force behind this movie. Kurz, his biggest contribution was the change at the end of the script to make Jason not just this tragic story of a boy in a lake, but to jump out as this sort of monstrous type figure, which then sets up all the other sequels. Oh, okay. Because that was never in the plans. They were like, Jason's not the bad guy. And then it was like, oh, 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 you want to make more money off of this? Jason's the bad guy. Well, he's a bad guy. (laughs) It is so weird the leap they made into the rest of this series. True. Based on what this movie was. True. It, it's it's very funny. So before we get into this saga, we talked about it a little bit. What do you think of the script of this movie? Well, I mean, like I said, I think the story is great. I do really like the story. I feel like we could have tightened it up with more single location, similar to Saw. Single location, multiple sets, but single location. Great story. Like, plenty of suspense. I'm fine with the 
opening scene being the flashback of like the original, like this is the original crime. Oh, of course. It's fine. That's just the origin of what happened. And then, yeah, now, now we're here. But the dialogue's crap. <laughs> like, the dialogue's crap. All the random fucking old Hollywood impressions. <laughs> oh, yeah. That so were like, what the fuck are they doing? What are you talking about? Why are you doing a Catherine Hepburn impression right now? I don't understand. You're teenagers. Yeah. They're 17 and 1980. They probably haven't seen a Hepburn movie. It's not true. <laughs> it was a big deal. Still, it's weird. There, There is so much boring ass dialogue. And it's interesting because I feel like the actors are dragged down by it. Mm-hmm. Only because it's like, what am I supposed to do with this? Along with, there's another interesting factor when we get into casting as to why things might feel a little stiff in this movie. Okay. But... Yeah, it just doesn't ever really work. However, if you could strip that away and get somebody better to write the dialogue, mm-hmm. you've got a really great plot. It is a great plot, which is why this type of story has been done over and over again. Again, single location. It's very interesting. And when our final villain shows up, it's got psycho level vibes from it. I oh, know it's yeah. his mom, but she's fucking scary. She is creepy. Uh Uh-huh. I like it. And then the little dream sequence turn at the end is actually pretty spooky. Oh, it's great. I love it. I feel like at the end they should have cut it off of, but what happened to him? He's still out there. Oh, of course. They and then they it kept going. That was too long. It should have it should have faded out with being like, like, no, that never happened. Like, no, but what happened to him? That's where they should have been the fade to black. That should have been the (gasps) because they didn't, they never found him. Well, and what you do is you superimpose that with the lake where it's this transparent double image of the lake and then cut to black and sure, it's that's, perfect. That would have been fine. Yeah, that's the only like for me like misstep on that ending because the ending's perfect because it allows you, here's the thing, if they never made another movie, that's still creepy as fuck. Oh God, it's yeah. It's great. But then knowing that they made a bunch of movies and we know that Jason is later the killer, it's great. I'm here for this. I'm I'm all about it. This movie could honestly do because it has been remade, but this movie could almost use the Gus Van Sant treatment mm-hmm. where you remake it shot for shot. Oh, OK. And you use the source material and then you just tweak it and tighten it up and get a bunch of competent people in to make it. <laughs> you just make you have you have different people make the movie. Well, and really because this part of why this movie suffers is that it's all being done on the fucking fly winging it almost and so if you've got people who really give it some more structure mm-hmm. and a little more finesse this movie could be brilliantly creepy true as a standalone horror movie true so like this is one of those cases where i'm like a shot for shot remake would actually do this movie really good in some ways so long as you don't use any of the dialogue <sighs> no miller wrote the script in two weeks yeah <laughs> he never actually attended summer camp as a kid that's funny but He'd heard numerous scary stories that his brother shared from him from being at the summer camps. Okay. So it was always one of these little creepy fears that he had. Okay. He was very intentionally trying to copy Halloween. That's what this movie is. They are trying to ride the success of Halloween and make a little money on the side out of it. I mean, I, yeah, I think I told you that. <laughs> now, the turn is that they then mashed that up with meatballs. So Halloween comes out in 78. Meatballs came out in 1979. I don't 
think I've ever seen Meatballs. Meatballs is what uh, Wet Hot American Summer is based off of. It's Bill Murray as a summer camp counselor, and it's a bunch of kids in the 70s. Okay, yeah, I do know about this movie. I've never seen it, but I I know about it. So, yeah, it's a low-budget summer camp comedy. Mm-hmm. And they sort of mashed those two together. Those two concepts, sure. To get this because both were huge hits with younger audiences. Yeah. Miller basically said he wanted to get successful by writing a film like Airplane, but he wound up with this instead. This is just where he landed. And one note that people bring up is that whether or not he consciously thought about this, he was inverting the formula of Psycho. So in Psycho, the son is splitting his identity with the mother, mother and in this, it's the mother splitting the identity with the son. Okay, I'm not mad about that. Miller's one complaint about the writing of this script, and he still holds this to this day, is that the motorcycle cop that shows up at the camp was not in any of his drafts. Nice bike. Keep it smoking, boy. Smoking. Don't smoke. Causes cancer. You know what I mean. Would you just get up a spaceship or something? Columbian gold, man. Grass, hash, the weed. Dig it? Hey, what's he talking about? They don't get smart. Me? I'm as dumb as they come. Hey. Kurz added that later. Miller wanted the script to be at the camp completely isolated. Yes. And it should have been that way. I agree. Because I agree. He, he, he wanted the audience to think no one was ever going to help these kids. Yeah. They're... They were going to have to somehow survive on their own. I mean, I still get that feeling, but having the cop show up is just... I understand why they did it because it's a red herring. Yeah. It's making you think, oh, that could be, it's the same guy, thing with the religious guy. With Harry, the nut guy. Yeah. It's just like, oh, see, someone else made it to the farm and yeah, or to the camp. And they're I, red herrings, but they're such obvious red herrings. They're obvious red herrings. And again, that goes back to like, this is just bad writing. Yeah. So it's just. But if you take those little pieces out, and you just make it about these kids trying to get to the camp, and then one by one they get picked off by this mysterious killer. Mm-hmm. I don't like. We don't need the scene of guy running the camp going into town and coming back. We yep. just need to see him driving through the rain trying to get back to the camp. Yep, that's it. Because it is so much more tense and scary that way. Yeah, and it, we didn't need to break the tension. So yeah, it just could have been much better. The working title for the film was Long Night at Camp Blood, but for reasons that we will get into in a little bit, this movie never had a different title. Okay. It was always Friday the 13th. Okay. However, the script barely mentions that it is Friday the 13th. Yeah, it doesn't. In fact, the director, Sean Cunningham, had to get Miller and Kurtz to write it into the script because it wasn't there. And as he pointed out, he was like, you know, it's really fucking cool and all. And like, it's a marketing bonanza for this. But if we don't establish that it is Friday the 13th, it will mean fucking nothing. He's completely right. <laughs> no, he is. So they put in, they wound up putting in throwaway lines. And it was like, you could have done this a little bit more. One oh, scene sure. of them actually talking about the spookiness of it. Mm-hmm. Come on. A scare. That, that is probably the biggest travesty of writing in this whole thing. It was just like, you guys should have talked about it more. And like, oh, yeah, this thing happened on this date. And several of the filmmakers said that Barry and Claudette's killing at the beginning, which we barely see. We just see their screaming faces. We don't mm-hmm. see a lot of blood or gore, was intentionally done in that sort of off-screen way to throw you off the fact that they were going to get very gory later in the film. I like that. 
Yeah. I think that was a good choice. Because I saw that and immediately thought, oh, maybe this isn't like as slashery as I thought. And then little by little throughout the movie, it was like, oh, okay. They asked, oh my God. It's like, oh no, we, this, this escalated quickly. Oh, wow. And it, it really does establish this trope that happens in so many movies now where it's like, as the killer goes on, it gets more and more violent and awful. Yep. And this is this is really the first time that happens. Like also things in other films, like the first kills are very meticulous and very well planned. And then things get a little bit more chaotic and a little more rash. Mm-hmm. Which I again, I like it. So now we get to our director. And this is Sean S. Cunningham. Now, Sean Cunningham doesn't have a whole lot of credits. Before he ever got into actually directing movies, he financed and produced Wes Craven's breakthrough film, The Last House on the Left. Okay. They both came from the softcore porn world. Yeah. And then Craven had this idea and they ran with it. Mm -hmm. And even then, Cunningham thought because he was a part of that movie, he was going to get some establishment mm -hmm. because Wes's career took off. Sure. Cunningham's didn't. So then he does some more R and X-rated porn type movies throughout the 70s. A knockoff Bad News Bears movie called Here Come the Tigers. And then he makes this. Mm -hmm. And after this, he becomes this master of making kind of crappy copies of other movies. Like Deep Star Six, which is definitely a ripoff of The Abyss that comes out the same fucking year. Oh, yeah. A Stranger is Walking. Spring Break. The New Kids. Yeah. <laughs> that That is his bailiwick. Oh, wow. And that's all he's really done. So what do we think of the directing of this movie? It's not bad. But I think this comes down to money. Of course. And experience. Very much so. A little needed. A if you had a little bit more money. You like you could have gotten some more elegant shots, and then just a just a little bit more experience. Like maybe if you were like second AD or like first AD on a bigger horror film, you would have been prepared for this. I just keep thinking back to we're gonna compare it to Halloween, but I keep thinking back to those like first shots with sure. walking down the street and Mike Myers popping out, yeah, and then disappearing. Yep, and how like fucking brilliant that is and carpenter had no money to work with sure but he knew how to frame that shot yep and this guy doesn't know any of that <laughs> yeah he doesn't he doesn't know how to build that type of suspense with doing very little and i will tell you the best shots in this movie are not really a result of him because we also need to mention two guys that are very important to the success of this movie okay tom savini who is the special makeup designer and the special effects designer. Okay. And then Tasso Stavrakis, who was his assistant on this film. Okay. Tom Savini did all of the effects for George Romero's Dawn of the Dead in 1976. Ah, uh, okay. And Cunningham and everybody involved were like, you're amazing. What you did with this movie is outstanding. Nothing short of a miracle. And we want you to work on this movie. And so he did. So... All of the best shots in this movie, which are the goriest shots in the movie, are his construction. Mm. So I, I want to give credit where credit's due because I think he, that guy is responsible for a lot of the best elements of this movie and the creepiest uh, and the lasting images of this movie. I mean, you're probably right. Hmm. Cunningham, however, 
did make one brilliant move. Mm -hmm. He was so certain that the title alone to this movie would sell it, that before he ever had a script, before he even had a story, he put out a full-page variety ad on the 4th of July, 1979, Mm -hmm. announcing the film with the image of the title breaking through glass. I mean... And he sold the movie. The financiers that had helped him make The Last House on the Left offered to cover the entire cost of the budget. I mean, that's just smart. He almost didn't accept it because he was going to get screwed so badly on the back end. But after he slept it off, he woke up the next morning like, who the fuck is going to give me $500,000 to make a movie? (laughs) I I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, he was smart. Friday the 13th is a great is a great title for the movie. It is. It's fabulous because it's spooky. It's completely creepy. It instantly tells you, oh. This is going to be fucked. Something's going to be bad. Something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. But did had nothing. He just had a title and he sold the fucking movie immediately. Sometimes here's the thing. Sometimes that means you're very charismatic and your title is the shit. Well, and you're also riding a wave because Halloween. Well, <sighs> that that's part of the brilliance though. But here's is, the thing. It's knowing Hall- that happened. Here's the thing. Halloween, not a good title. Oh, I think it's a great title. Halloween, but, you know. No, Halloween is not a good title. It's not. All it tells you is this is going to take place on or around Halloween or <laughs> this movie is about Halloween. That's it. That's all that title tells you. You then have to watch a trailer or be told by somebody to know, is this a spooky movie? Is this a scary movie? Is this a costume movie? Like, what the fuck? Maybe if you hear that theme, you're like, okay. Then when you hear that theme, you're like, oh, we fucked. <laughs> That's the difference. Friday the 13th, you already know I'm fucked. That's fair. That's the difference. It's, yeah. Like, you hear, because this is where my life is. Christmas? Oh, you probably think Hallmark Channel movie. Krampus? Fuck. <laughs> Both mean Christmas mean different things it's true there you go filming only took 28 days and the editing took 10 weeks yeah should should take a little more time with it my dudes the entire movie was filmed at camp noby bosco in new jersey noby bosco it is an actual boy scout camp still in operation in hardwick new jersey there is a wall of memorabilia to honor the film there that's cool Mm mm-hmm they were only allowed to use the camp after making a large donation to the Boy Scouts of America. That's fair. But the location provided almost all of the set pieces they needed. The only set that they actually built for the movie was the bathroom. That makes, yeah, that, that tracks. So they just had a perfect location. That is good location scouting. That's very good. Most of the cast and crew stayed off-site in hotels, but there were a few dedicated staff, including Savini and Stavrakis, who stayed at the camp during filming. Oh, God. And Savini brought his Betamax VCR and two movies. Oh, no. Barbarella and Marathon Man. He needed more movies. So every night they switched between one or the other. He needed more movies. (laughs) Savini says that to this day he can recite those movies by memory. I feel like I can almost do that with Biodome. (laughs) I can almost do that with the movie Biodome. Those are two wild movies to know by heart, though. Is it safe? So is Biodome, David. (laughs) Cunningham refused to direct the second film because of the Jason Returns from the Dead scenario that the studio was asking for. Okay. He didn't think it was going to work, and then he saw the subsequent success of the film, and he's probably not excited he turned that down. It's like, oh, I made a boo-boo. Eh, not a great choice. 
The funny thing is, producer Steve Miner, who worked on the movie, also thought it was a completely idiotic idea. Quote, he wasn't your villain, he's just a figment of someone's imagination, unquote. I mean, they're not wrong. Like, here's the thing, none of them are wrong. Steve Miner directed Friday the 13th, part two and three. But, like, but they're right. <laughs> no, but he's right. There's, he's a figment of their imagination. I know, but they did it anyway. Hey, Freddy Krueger, dreams are powerful. Well, Wes Craven did the smart did the smart note of, he's in your dreams. <laughs> yeah, because Wes Craven is a genius. Yeah, these guys, man, these guys got so fucking lucky. They got so they, lucky. They really did. And, and right okay, place, right time. A little bit of credit. They had really, they had some really talented artisans working on the movie, mm-hmm. and they had a keen sense of opportunity. Yeah, the right place, right time. Perfect marketing, like outstanding marketing for this movie. Now, Cunningham always disputes the characterization of the film as misogynistic in the sinners must be punished vein, okay. which is what the common criticism is. Sure, he sees this film as a bad things happen to good people movie. Okay, that's how he sees it, and he cites the fact that. Just as many men die as women in the film. That is true. And even our final girl isn't like a saint. No, she's not. She's just a normal girl. We just don't see her having sex. Yeah. And so I think his feeling is that a lot of people projected that onto this movie. Yeah. Well, it's not just this movie, but they project it onto so many other films. And it is a very common trope in horror films is... Once you are seen having sex, then you die. Yeah, and and it, it's possible just the fact that so many people tried to remake this movie. True. To remake the success, that it then builds into this common but then trend. They, they already saw that and they're like, oh, well, let's keep that person pure and then make that a whole point. S- somewhere along the way it happened. But I, I think it's interesting that Cunningham was like, that's not what we were trying to say at all. No. John Carpenter and Deborah Hill have also both made statements like this in the past. Deborah Hill specifically has a really great quote. I think people are reading moral and sociological messages into a simple horror story that has no agenda to lecture the audience in any way. And I think that may be very true of Halloween and Friday the 13th. They were like, we're just making a fucking movie. Like, I get it. But John Carpenter has made it very clear when he has an agenda he wants to get across. You, it will be very clear. Halloween doesn't have that. So, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like if you watched enough, you would find the time where somebody very intentionally made that a thing. Well, it's just in horror films, when there's an agenda, I think it's very obvious. Like, go watch Get Out. Absolutely. (laughs) Or Us. There's an agenda there. It's very very obvious. It's very well done. It is interesting. It's an interesting chicken or egg argument that pops up of is that baked into these movies and the way that they're made? Or is it something that cropped up in trying to replicate the success of these movies? Who knows? True. All right. Let's talk about our cast. And our cast is really weird for this movie because there are only a couple of like big name actors. In fact, really only one that we're going to talk about as an actual star. Yeah. Cunningham's entire casting philosophy was to find, quote, good looking kids who you might find at a Pepsi commercial, unquote. I'm here for it. (laughs) So, they wound up using a New York-based agency well-known in the New York theater community. Okay. So, all of these actors are Broadway kids. (laughs) None of them are film people. I love it. And most of them don't have, like, major film credits after this. Actually, you want to know why that's great? You have a limited budget? 
You have limited film. Broadway does it live. I can get it in one. There you go. And I like I, that's the thing. The actors in this movie do a very admirable job. The only thing they're seeming to stumble over is the fact that they don't have a lot of meat to work with, which I think they're more used to working with. Perhaps. But they do a better job than if you got a bunch of people from a modeling catalog agency. I think so. Out of LA. Like, they they try. They're committed to giving you something. And that's better than what we could have gotten if you just went to Central Casting in LA. I, I, I think so. But yeah, I think that's that's definitely to their credit. So in many ways, this is a Broadway movie. They had Broadway stars sent by a Broadway agency, and the film actually premiered in a Broadway movie theater. That's adorable. (laughs) So we get our first big actor, and that is Betsy Palmer playing Mrs. Voorhees. Okay. Now, Betsy Palmer doesn't have a whole lot of credits that you'd recognize. She just did tons and tons of television in the 50s and 60s and was kind of... She, she was like a mid-range actress around then and then just kind of disappeared off the face of the planet until this movie. Oh, okay. After this, she appears in Friday the 13th Part 2 and then had a little run on Knott's Landing, but not a lot of big roles after this. This becomes her iconic claim to fame. Okay. What do we think of Betsy Palmer in this movie? I mean, she's good. She's fucking terrifying. <laughs> she, she is. And one of the things that I remember, okay, I knew she was the bad guy. Like, it clicked, it clicked in the back of my brain where I was like, oh, yeah, she's the bad guy. But then still seeing her, I was like, but no. I knew that the whole time. Like, but I I never knew what she looked like. So I never knew any of that. Didn't know what her reasonings were. No clue. I just knew that she was the bad guy. Um, so I never looked up anything about this movie. So when I first saw her, I was like, oh, she looks like kind of like the mom from The Partridge Family, which is a little disarming, which is great. So then you totally get why Annie, uh-huh. our survivor girl, is all like, okay, yeah, let's, let me help you. And then she just keeps talking and she keeps talking. I'm like, oh, mur- murder monologue. Okay, great. I love this. This is great. And then she's just like, yeah, then it gets into that psycho psychosis where she's taken on this thing. And it's just like, oh, this is not great. The first time she talks in Jason's voice and you hear the voice and you just see Annie running and you're like, Wait, what the fuck? And then you see her do it and you're like, oh no. Yeah. Kill her, mommy. Kill her. Oh no. This is bad. And you just see the longer it goes on, the more and more she's just dissolving. Yeah. It's It's really good. It it almost feels a little bit like she's become fractured. She has definitely co-opted the identity of jason into her own self sure and she's having a conversation with herself and she does it masterfully that's that broadway stuff of like i don't that is hard to do convincingly yep and she pulls it off so one of the interesting things is despite all of the criticism for this movie that final sequence and especially her performance were one of the things that most critics all agreed was actually really great Mm-hmm. They really liked her performance. Cool. So I will credit to her. She got even the critics to turn around for her. Whenever she is asked, she tells fans that she has no idea who wears the hockey mask in those other movies because her son Jason died in 1957. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I had heard that joke about her. And I was like, that is precious. <laughs> and I love it. And because it's also, it's one, it's perfect. It's such a good because line. Because her character dies. Uh-huh. 
So she wouldn't know any, her character wouldn't know anything about what goes on. Of course. And also, she's the actress. She shouldn't have to answer for any of this bullshit. So I love it's that cheeky thing of just like, leave me the fuck alone by also acknowledging this, this is, this is weird. Well, to her credit, like she has taken up this mantle. She, you know, she goes to all the conventions and stuff. So sure. it's, it's very much an in-joke, but I do love that she has built that response. Well, my Jason died in 1957. I don't know who that is. <laughs> now, despite that, she has frequently taken mother and son photos with Jason hockey mask people, including the main guy who's played Jason in a lot of the Friday the 13th movies. So also adorable. <laughs> Selfies with Jason. Selfies with Jason. At a conference for one of the anniversaries, Palmer said that when she first read the script, she took it, said, what a piece of shit, and threw it across the room into the trash. Fair. She did this while Victor Miller was in attendance at the conference. I mean, still, <laughs> here's the thing, still fair. Palmer then said she thought about it, she needed money for a new car at the time, and the movie would probably just come and go in theaters. Like, I'll take the paycheck, it's not going to do anything anyway. It's been the most lucrative thing she's ever done. <laughs> She took the job, and now she's a fucking legend. I mean, <laughs> you know, you don't always know what's going to hit. Now, an interesting note, coming from the theater and using a method style of acting, she built an elaborate backstory for Mrs. Voorhees. Great. The idea was that she had Jason out of wedlock, and her parents had disowned her because, quote, it isn't what good girls do. Fair. And so because of that, she hated all promiscuity. Okay, I'm fine with that. Here's the thing. Based on the words that were written on the page, that makes total sense. And I think that may be a lot where the vibe that some critics came up with see. Sure. And like, okay, that totally makes sense. Like, that's, that's why her character... Like, she sees what happened to my son is because I had him out of wedlock, which is why my parent, like, it's all because I did this horrible thing. All these bad things happen, which is why I had to kill these counselors, you know, because they were doing naughty things. So I did bad things. So bad things have to happen then, and just so on and so forth. And then, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to do this if y'all weren't going to open up the part, this thing yet. If y'all were going to keep it closed, then it would be fine. But no, you had to come here and do... The nasty, y'all have to go to hell. That's just how it works. But again, the movie contempts that point of view. (laughs) No, it totally does. But I totally, I fully respect her backstory. Yeah, that's that's a good stuff. Having worked in the 50s and 60s, she was actually used to doing full contact slaps with cupped hands Uh to avoid the full impact. Sure. But when she had to slap around Alice, Cunningham was like, no, 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 no. We are cheating the angles. You are not hitting anyone. Oh. So. Every now and then. Someone's got to give a slap. Someone's got to take a slap. Fair, but this was not one of those no, things. No, no. Especially for how hard those slaps were oh, totally, on screen. Totally. And she only appears in the final part of the film. She's not the killer yep. in any other scenes. That honor went to Stavrakis, who performed as, air quote, Mrs. Voorhees throughout the entirety of the film to start. That's awesome. I want to be the body. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be the shape. All right. Who could have been better? No. Originally signed on for this film, Estelle Parsons. Aw, damn. (laughs) Estelle Parsons, whiny lady. She was starting, she was like getting geared up to do it. And then she and her agent got a hold of the full script and were like, who? Her agent literally said, what actress would take this role? It is so demeaning. Okay. To be fair, the script sucks. Oh, it's bad. script sucks. It's bad. However, 
I'm sure she's kind of like, mm, I would have liked that money. <laughs> well, I don't know how much uh, money okay. they got from what, this. Here, no, but here's the thing. That convention circuit is lucrative. Oh, yeah. She's made some serious bank off of that. I am sure that Betsy Palmer's entire income comes from going to conventions talking about Friday the 13th. And selling autographs. Which, good for her. Oh, no, no. Ain't no shame in the fan game. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. So, hey, and it's hey. mutual appreciation. Absolutely. And also, Shelly Winters. Huh. I don't know how I feel about Shelly Winters. Estelle Parsons would have been awesome, but I think her voice... I love... I mean, I love Estelle Parsons. Oscar-winning yeah. actress. Yeah. Roseanne's mom on Roseanne. It's true. Loved her. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Interesting stuff. There were some big names attached. Interesting choices. Next, we have Adrian King playing Alice. Before this, she was a dancer in Saturday Night Fever and Hair. And after this, she appears in Friday the 13th Part 2, but she is mostly gotten a lot of work as an ADR voice recording artist. Oh, neat. So she has done ADR for The Good Son, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, The Pelican Brief, Philadelphia, While You Were Sleeping, Jerry Maguire, Titanic, and Almost Famous. All right. Interesting stuff. That's cool. What do we think of Alice in this movie? You're really shitty with a hammer and nails and a ladder. <laughs> that scene really, I'm, I'm okay. That scene really bothered me. It's it's so bad because when you're you're not hammering shit, you're not intentionally bad. Like if you want to make that character bad at doing that because she's supposed to be like nineteen, you clearly don't know what to do with those. Pro- like you're like, hey, look like you're hammering up the scutter. Okay. How do I do that? You don't know how to do that. You also don't know how to move that ladder. Or you aren't able to move the ladder enough to make you like you're just doing busy work, but you can't move out of your frame, which I respect because you can't move out of your frame. So I'm like, this is the dumbest activity for them to have given you, given the fact that you can't move out of frame or you don't know how to use a hammer and nails on the ladder. So I that that scene bugged the shit out of me. I hate it when it's it's like someone who doesn't know how to smoke on screen. It's just like, what are you doing? There's some weird ass business going on in this movie. Yeah, this is poor. Like they needed to adjust. It's like it's like they got to the camp and went, okay, we got this building, this building. So we're going to do this here and this in this part and nothing else. Yeah. And it's it's just bad. It, it that really it was bothering me the whole scene also not her fault but her having dated the camp guy is just like uh, when he's supposedly like 11 or 12 years older than her I, it reads bad it reads bad i don't i think he's supposed to be like mid-20s and she's supposed to be 19 but that ain't how it looks on screen no she looks like 20 year old versus 40 year old it feels cringy it feels a little predatory no, it feels a lot predatory. But also, that could also purposely be for some misdirection. Yeah, it's possible. Which, you know, she holds her own against that stuff, so I give them credit on that. She she really does that thing where we've seen in some horror movies where it's like, the longer this goes on and the more intense things get, the better you get. Here's the thing. She is not without agency. Oh, no, Absolutely. The only time where she falls into somewhat of a uh, damsel in distress trope is with the snake. Yeah. And I have no qualms about that because I'd be like, burn the whole place down. Yeah, it's it's interesting because they, they give her agency. They give a lot of the characters agency. Yeah. In some interesting ways. She auditioned for all of the different female roles, 
but she got the role partially because she knew someone in the casting office. They had actually done this as an open casting call for publicity. Again, they did almost everything to market this fucking movie. That's genius. But they did this open casting call and they saw her in the casting office. She was a friend of somebody there. She got in and she landed it based on her screen. Oh, yeah. She was opposed to the graphic violence and almost didn't take the role on because of how gory it was going to get. But she decided to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. She gets asked sometimes about her status as the final girl. And, you know, how she felt about that status since she, quote, didn't take her clothes off or was a, quote, good girl. Uh Her response is perfect. Quote, I just had a mean swing. You know, me and my machete. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here for that. Who could have been better? Uh Sally Field. Ooh. Okay. I mean, Sally Field can do no wrong. Yeah, that's not true. I don't know. I feel like she's a little, this is weird to say, I feel like she's a little bit old at this point. She had done Norma Ray at this time. Had she, she had? Yeah, that was like 79. She she would have felt too mature. A little bit. Like, not old, but mature. Unless they were going to lean into that sort of, like, older camp lead and older camp sure, lady. Sure, like, and... there's some older older adult running which the then camp the, along with the younger adults. Which then the strip monopoly thing can't happen. Mm, well, they don't have to be there for that strip monopoly. I don't know. She could be dead by then. It's, it's true. But, uh, interesting. An interesting idea. We have Janine Taylor playing Marcy. I'm mentioning all the kids because they are they have big roles. But this is really her only film role, so yay. yay. Robbie Morgan, who plays Annie, the chef who gets killed before she ever gets to the damn camp. She doesn't have a lot of other credits, but the fun note of trivia, she is married to TV host Mark L. Wahlberg, the host of the U.S. version of Antiques Roadshow. Oh, okay. Yeah. She filmed for one day. Yeah. And she never met Betsy Palmer. Her actual killer. That's funny. She never auditioned for this role. The casting director saw her in the office. They auditioned her for a different project. And they were like, you're not right, but we do need like this cute perky camp counselor for this movie. You want to be in it? She said, sure, give me money. She was on set the next day. That works. Yeah. Next, we have the one big kahuna from this entire film. It is Mr. Kevin Bacon as... Jack. Have we ever talked about him? We have not talked oh my God. about Kevin Bacon. This is the, this is it. Before this movie, he did Animal House and Starting Over. After this movie, he does Diner, Footloose, Quicksilver, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. She's having a baby. The big picture tremors. We did talk about him. He was in... Oh, no. He was just Narpon. Exactly. Flatliners, he said, she said, JFK, the air up there, the river wild, murder in the first, Apollo 13, Balto sleepers, picture perfect, wild things, stir of echoes, my dark skip, hollow man, Novocaine, mystic river, in the cut, the woodsman, where the truth lies, death sentence, frost Dixon, x-men, first class, crazy stupid love, r.i.p.d., the following on television, black mass, and patriots day. Wow. How do you feel about seeing Kevin Bacon with his shaggy ass hair and speedos in this movie? I mean, he really, he really hasn't aged. (laughs) (laughs) He's gotten wrinkly. He's gotten wrinkly, but he really hasn't aged. No. That reddish hair is still there. It's so funny. Solid bone structure. Yeah. He really that does. dude. Yeah, he's taking care of himself. Yeah, good, he's good for him. He's great. Uh, I mean, they don't give him much to work with, so he's just the pretty face who gets murdered. So, he, yeah, he does his job. He is the pretty boy in this movie. He's, he's the pretty boy. He gets laid. That's nice for him. It's true. And then he dies. And then he dies. So a really horrible death, a really horrible death that looked really cool. So there's I, that. And I will say like that. I think that's the moment for me. That death is the moment where I went, whoa, we just up the Annie real hardcore. 
Yeah, because that became came before the axe of the face. The axe of the face and the machete and then the arrows and stuff. Because like it, that one wasn't too like I was like, oh, that's gross. But the axe of the face was like, oh, damn. Yeah. But the arrow through the neck is just like, oh, shit. It got way darker. Yeah. I was not prepared. I wasn't expecting that one. Despite his sizable role in Animal House, he was back to workaday acting after that movie. So this movie Mm -hmm. is actually the big break for him. I believe that. This was what got him more roles. And then he gets Diner and and then Footloose, obviously. God, Footloose. But yeah, this this is what kind of gives him the push into movie start mm. he had to shave his armpits for the sex scene does he have muppet armpits hmm interesting i don't know and the saga of his death scene is pretty freaking weird and awesome and cool uh-huh. so he had to crouch under the bed and put okay. his head through a hole in the mattress okay then savini and stavrakis lay down a latex neck and chest appliance to mirror him laying down on the bed okay it took hours to get that setup right, and Bacon was crouched down in that position, uncomfortable while they put it all together. Of course. Savini and Stavrakis are also under the bed with him, mm-hmm. and the stabbing happened when Savini would shove an arrow through the fake neck, and his assistant was going to use a pump to push the blood through the appliance. Mm-hmm. The crew had to have someone stand in for the killer's hand, holding Kevin Bacon's head down. They got the still photographer to do that. And when they finally got to the moment, they got everything put together, the hose for the pump disconnected. At that moment, Stavrakis knew it was ride or die. Because if they didn't get this shot, and if they didn't get the blood out, they were going to have to redo the entire thing. So he grabbed the pump and immediately started blowing into it. And the blood went out. Yep. And so that is why when you see it, you see bubbles coming out Uh is because he's blowing into it to get it to shoot out of there. But he saved the scene and they got it in that take. That's amazing. And Stavrakis said, blood didn't taste too bad. It's that cornstarch stuff, you know. (laughs) No. Gross, but also admirable. Like, well done for saving it, dude. That would have been hell to put back together. We have Harry Crosby playing Bill. He has some minor roles, and he also was a bit of a singer. His father is none other than Bing Crosby. Ooh. Now, the interesting thing, he's mostly worked in investment banking, um, but he was actually trying to make a go of it as an actor without his dad's cachet. So he was trying to just make it on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, the producers at the time thought they were mimicking Halloween, who had cast Jamie Lee Curtis. Sure. But it turned out that they didn't really know who he was until after he was in the movie. And then when they found out, they just added that to the marketing bonanza. Oh, that's funny. Again, luck. Pure fucking luck. That's great. During his impalement scene, you can notice his eye twitching. That is because the application that Savini put for the arrow in his eye was burning his eye. Oh, no. So he was twitching in pain. Luckily, that's a quick shot. Yeah. So... Lori Bartram playing Brenda, she performed in this and had a little run on Another World, and then she went and enrolled at Liberty University. Boo! <laughs> Burn it down. But fun fact, Savini filled in for her when Brenda gets thrown out of the window. <laughs> That's nice. This is such, like, let's put on a show. I'm here for it. But with professionalism. Well, let's, let's put on a movie. Who could have been better? Penelope Milford, who was Oscar-nominated in Coming Home, and we have talked about her as Pauline Fleming, the guidance counselor in Heathers. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Mark Nelson playing Ned. This guy has done tons of one-off guest spots on television and was also in the first Wives Club. This was his first film, and at his initial audition, he was only given comedic scenes. Okay. At his next audition, he was told to wear a bathing suit, which is when he got a little suspicious. Oh, no. But then, when he finally got the script, he finally understood, oh, it's a slasher flick at a summer camp. Okay. (laughs) It's not not porn. His quote, kind of fun, it certainly was not a straight dramatic role, and it was only after they offered me the part that they gave me the full script to read, and I realized how much blood was in it. Rex Everhart, who plays the truck driver in this movie, you might know him better as the voice of Maurice in Beauty and the Beast. It's Belle's dad, everybody. Yeah. Walt Gorney playing Crazy Ralph. He showed up again in part two, and we also saw him as the character Duke Domestic in Trading Places. Crazy Ralph was really only added to the script as foreshadowing and as a potential red herring. Okay. Cunningham has gone on record saying, I question whether it actually did any of that for us. Nope, but did not. Superfluous character. See, the whole, it would have been much more effective if we only, the only characters we ever see after the flashback are the actual counselors. So that the reveal of Miss Voorhees is a total shock. Oh, yeah. Because then the whole thought, the whole time, then the people being in different buildings and the, oh, I'm running out to get this and the whole that becomes, who is it? Because you have people moving locations and like, oh, this person could have done this. It's because you're trying to solve the, the mystery while it's happening, which is part of the fun. Yeah, it's, it's sloppy. And then finally, as Man the Knife Killer, Tom Savini, our special effects artist. I love it. I think he was in this movie like in five different random shots <laughs> just because be like, we got to have somebody do it. Savini, get over there. Are you not doing anything? Okay, go do this. Uh, I got it. I'm good. He's like the intern. The intern who was like more talented than anybody else on the set. <laughs> yeah. That's the flip side. Yeah. So trivia. Wow. Okay. The camp was closed and sat deep in the woods, so nobody bothered them, but they did have a pretty famous neighbor guitarist and music legend Lou Reed owned a farm nearby. <laughs> so Lou Reed showed up occasionally. I think at first just be like, what are you guys doing over here? Oh, you're making a movie? And um, per Soundman Richard Murphy, we got to watch Lou Reed play for free right in front of us while we were making the film. He just came onto set and hung around and was a really, really great guy. That's fine. Which Lou Reed is notoriously kind of an asshole, but this is one of those situations where you caught him at a nice time. Probably one of those things like, oh, you're making a movie. I want to watch. I want to mm. see how you do this. Ah, neat. Y'all want to hear Sweet Jane? <laughs> okay, cool, cool. Let's <sighs> see what y'all are doing. The snake in the cabin was not in the script, but was an idea from Savini after he encountered an actual snake in his own cabin. Gross. The idea was to establish that the characters were capable of taking action. Oh, okay. I don't like that. So they... They can problem solve. I do appreciate that. That is one thing baked into the script that does set it apart from other movies. Yes. These characters are not helpless. They're not helpless. They have agency. It's just that they're in a hopeless situation. Yeah. Like I like, you know, oh, the power went out. Oh, I they showed me where the generator is. I know how to fix it. Uh They go and they fix it. Like we see them doing things because that's the whole point is they're there to fix up the camp to get it ready for camp exactly so they're not helpless dum-dums they're just fucked i like that i like that concept they're just fucked yep however 
Peter was not on the set. That was a real snake. Oh. And we see a real snake die on screen. Well. The arrow shot that just misses Brenda on the archery range was performed by Tom Savini. What didn't? <laughs> he basically directed this movie. He made the, no, he made the whole movie. He really did. The only thing he didn't do was act in the face parts. And he also didn't compose. He didn't write the movie. Composer Henry Manfredini has said that contrary to popular belief, the famous phrase in the theme is actually pronounced ki 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 ma ma ma, which is meant to resemble Jason as a child saying kill mom in the same way that Pamela is splitting back and forth in Jason's voice saying get her mommy, kill her. So a lot of people think it's like chi 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 chi, ka 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 ka, and it's not. He actually is the voice of that echo. He okay. just ran it through a microphone with tape delay. Sure. And one of the other things that they talked about was like, he very intentionally sparingly used the music in the film. Yeah. He tries not to score it very much as opposed to Halloween where Carpenter scored so much of the movie. Yeah. Because part of what becomes suspenseful is the absence of sound. Absolutely. Especially so, in this movie. So that when you hear that creak or that rustling, it freaks you out. <laughs> Ah, this movie. This movie, it's not great, but it has a lot going for it. Cunningham wanted to cast his son, Noel Cunningham, as Jason, but his wife was not okay with that plan. Fair. (laughs) There is an actual Voorhees, New Jersey, about eight miles from Haddonfield, New Jersey, which is the inspiration for the fictional town where Halloween takes place. Oh, fun. So in a 25th anniversary Halloween documentary, they pass a road sign that says Haddonfield X Miles, Voorhees X Miles. That's adorable. <laughs> I mean, I'm not mad about that. That's just that's just coincidence, but it is very funny. And I mean, I'm just waiting to watch the movie that references those coincidences. Well, it's probably uh, Scream I, Five, <laughs> <laughs> which has officially been announced. So excited! I'm so far. I started watching Scream the television series. It's currently on Netflix. And I'm thoroughly impressed. And some of the jokes are very good. Someone makes a comment about a landline and they say, what is this, 1996? Which is when the original movie was released. And I was like, that's a good joke. I was really proud about that one. The surprise Jason Dreeb sequence ending is an admitted ripoff from Brian De Palma's Carrie, which is noted as the first official jump scare. Oh, okay. De Palma, for his part, said that he liked it, even though he said he saw it coming. Savini apparently went for weeks to theaters to go watch the audience's reaction to Jason jumping out of the lake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Again, now it's just like, ooh, in 1980, you sure. probably would have been running out of the fucking theater. Sure. I mean, if, if I made something like this, I would do the same thing. Oh, it's, it's a great move. Um, especially like now that I'm making something that has some moments of suspense, just getting to pull those moments on cast is super fun and then when i get to hear from people who have listened to it it's just like (laughs) it feels it feels fun and lastly something interesting is that this movie which was completely vilified by critics shares a striking resemblance to the best picture winner that year ordinary people both movies are center on the drowning of a son and a vindictive mother who takes out the death on everyone around her. Well, I haven't seen Ordinary People. I have not, but I was like, wow. 
Interesting. It's very much a coincidence, but there sure. are a lot of like weird, weird similarities that pop up. I mean, there's only so many ideas in the world. Eh, and just interesting, interesting huh. stuff. And that gets us to our ratings. Mm. Now, normally we would say the iconic hockey mask, but that's not in this movie. No, because it's not iconic yet. I know. It's, it's wild. It's great. So for this movie, what are we going to use for our rating system? How many kiki ki mama ma? Oh no, we can do better than that. Yeah, we can. It just was fun to say. Arrows through the neck? <sighs> no. Machetes? Yeah, machetes. How machetes. many machetes? That's a good start. Machetes. That, that's definitely going to make an appearance throughout the rest of the series. Sure. I'm going to go three. Solid three. Ooh, okay. Solid three. Okay. I, I love the I love the concept. I'm here for it. I love the concept. The execution is decent. It's not perfect, but it's decent. So I'm not mad. Yeah, I'm here for it. Yeah, you know what? I'll give it a three as well. And it's interesting because I think I gave Halloween the same thing. The difference is, is that this movie, I don't think the group you have could aspire to any like higher achievement as opposed to Halloween where I'm like, if you gave this man a lot more money, a lot more would happen. Honestly, if this film had better dialogue and a skosh more money, then this could truly rival the quality of halloween that's fair that's fair i don't think halloween needs improvement because it's one of those things that more money would hinder the creativity of halloween that's fair because i like michelle gondry talked about more money doesn't make you better and it can actually hinder your creativity john carpenter is proof positive of that true like more money can help more money's not always bad but it doesn't f- always fix the problem. Yeah, this this movie is just hamstrung by a lot of things from being like a, a fully just great movie. But it is classic and it is influential as fuck. Oh, yeah. What's also refreshing is this movie surprisingly holds up. It really? hasn't aged that badly. The only thing it's really aged badly is in terms of just quality. Like, that's about it. Well, I, it's the quality and, I mean, just the dialogue sucks. But I, I would probably have said that back then. So, yeah. there you go. Next week, we're going to do a little double feature. Oh. That we didn't intend to do a double feature. No. But then we decided we needed to do it. We just do. We do. We're going to do Child's Play. Oh. I really wanted to watch the 2019 Child's Play. Yes. And David said, sure. All right, fine. So, we watched it. And there are a lot of opinions. Oh, boy. And David's never seen the original. No. And David decided we really needed to. We need to watch the original. As strong as this new entry is and as strong out of the gates as it is swinging. I really feel like it's worth examining what they did in 87. And I, I actually now having seen the 2019 version. Yes. Considering how, uh, yeah how strong this entry is into this world i think we're gonna have a better conversation about the 2019 movie if you've watched that that's not always the case with a remake or a reboot i think that i think uh, yeah we definitely need to talk about the 88 film so we're gonna do that so until next time bye everybody Thank you.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you.